0: Welcome to another episode of Chalk Talk. In this episode, we're going to go back to TCT 2021 and listen into a roundtable discussion about the latest coronary IVL data that was presented at the meeting. The roundtable discussion was hosted by Dr. Ajay Kurdine with Matthew Price, Alexander Lansky, and Ziad Ali. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome, everybody, to TCT 2021. My name is Ajay Kirtanay from Columbia University, and I'm joined here today with a great panel. We have Ziad Ali from St. Francis, Alexander Lansky from Yale, and Matt Price from uh, Scripps. Good friends and colleagues. We're here to talk about new insights into coronary IVL data from this meeting. Um, There's been a lot of stuff presented, and all of you have taken great part in that. We're going to talk about a few different topics. One is imaging data, how's the mechanism of IVL help patients. We're going to talk a little bit about new data uh, from follow-up, pooled data and follow-up, and also specific subgroups of patients who might be able to benefit from the technology. So maybe we'll start with you, Zia. Tell us a little bit about what you presented at the meeting. Um, How is it relevant clinically? And there's a lot of insights that can be gleaned from the imaging uh, modalities intravascularly. So thanks. Um, You know, one of the things that we did
1: throughout the Disrupt series of trials was have OCT sub-studies or strongly encouraged intravascular imaging. So we ended up with more than 250 cases of intravascular imaging where OCT was performed at least pre, and we tried to do post, but also sometimes in between. And that provided a tremendous amount of insights into the subgroups of calcium that sometimes we don't have answers for. So I think the clinical data for IVL speaks for itself. But specific subgroups of calcium, like eccentric calcium, varying degrees of concentricity and calcified nodules, that really hadn't come up. And the beauty is that intravascular imaging really allows you to dive deep into those and look at the effects of IVL in these different
0: subgroups that actually impact us clinically. Makes sense, I mean the truth is, is most clinicians, they see some calcium, they say maybe we'll use it, we'll put it in the trial, um, but with a deeper dive, uh, foresight if you will, pardon the pun, to see what's going on actually within the vessel, you'll get an idea of what might happen or might not happen when you use IVL. So tell us a little bit, I mean, d- is it sure. useful
1: in these scenarios or do you so need concentric? So maybe I'll divide it up into, into a couple of specific sections which we presented on today. And one is uh, eccentric versus concentric, and the second is gonna be calcified nodules. So, uh, to summarize from eccentric and concentric is, from a vascular biology point of view, truly eccentric calcium that's less than 90 degrees tends to be pretty thick. I think we've all seen this on intravascular imaging. It's that ball in the side of the artery. And the problem with the ball is, when you stent it, you push it out of the way, but it pushes it back in. So you end up with this D-shaped stent. The question is, when you're like that, can IVL impact it, and if it does, how? And so what we learned is that once you get past the 90 degrees threshold, the amount of calcium increases rapidly, that the number of fractures as a result of IVL, because you have more substrate, the more calcium, the more likely you ever get a fracture, that happens. But by virtue of the fact that the eccentric calcium has a lot of fibrous tissue, and an interface between the calcium and the fibrous tissue you can tear it and actually get equal expansion. So the bottom line was that in eccentric versus concentric calcification, you get equal stent expansion and very good luminal gain. The unique thing was, which in all the years of doing OCT and analyzing OCT, it's extremely rare if maybe even never, I've seen a calcium fracture in less than 90 degrees. But in IVL, it happened. And that just speaks to the mechanism of action. If the electrode's right next to even a ball of calcium that's less than 90, you can still fracture it. Whether that yields additional gain, that we don't know. But the bottom line is in eccentric versus concentric, they work equally as well. I think what was a lot more interesting and is really exciting for all of us is calcified nodules. So calcified nodules increasing in their uh, incidence and frequency because statins and more stable disease in older patients, but calcified nodules are like the bane of the bane of the existence of the interventionalist, right? Calcium is the bane and then this is the bane of the bane. So what we found was really two predominant take-home messages. One is there are two types of calcified nodules. There's the calcified nodules like that's the glacier sticking out of the artery wall where it's all calcified, it's like a rock in a rock. And then there's a second phenomena where there's these, basically it's like popcorn and jelly. There's like a calcified nodule with multiple little beads of calcium, but it's actually stuck in fibrous tissue or lipid. And what we found is that there was two mechanisms of stent expansion. In 70% of cases where it's like the popcorn in the, the jello, you just push it out of the way. You deliver the IVL shocks, it breaks up those interfaces, and you can push it out. But in the in the one-third that's not deformed, you have a classic mechanism, and that is you get fracture. Now, you, the fracture can be right down the middle. That's pretty uncommon. But as I mentioned, the more the calcium, the more the nodules, and we already know that the more the calcium, the more the IVL works, So what ends up happening is the IVL works on either side of the nodule, fracturing it, and allows you to push this thing out of the way. The bottom take-home message was that whether you had a calcified nodule in 55 versus 220-odd patients,
0: the minimal stent ear and the expansion was the same. And tell us a little bit about, I mean, what do you think the long-term outcomes of that are going to be? Because I think we know for a fact that calcified nodules are a bane of our existence in the lab. But also, as you know, they, they certainly can improve or, or worsen long-term outcomes because the nodule comes back. So what you're saying is because you fractured it, perhaps the predilection for it to come back and further deform the sun and everything may you know, less? I, I think that's a great point. And if we go back into the vascular biology of
1: this, I think what happens is the popcorn-type calcified nodules happens at parts of the artery that are highly tortuous and have a lot of bending. Okay, Because as the lipid is turning into calcium, the macrophages are are activating, it creates these little balls because it can't ever create a solid nodule. The artery is just moving too much. And so in those segments, when you push it out of the way, there is a preponderance to pop back through. you know, I have to pay attention to where it is in the artery, where it is on bends, but in the other, you know, third, or I should say, the the third that's not, I think those are likely to, to actually be
0: impacted more like the cl- classic calcific fracture. You fracture it, moves out of the way. You get a neo around it. It's weakened or some at some point, so that it's okay that way. Just as a frame of reference, among the cases, all the cases that we're seeing OCT-wise, how frequently did you see calcified nodules? How frequently do you see eccentric calcium? Yeah, so um, 55 patients out of the 260 odd
1: patients. So, you know, I, I, you know, a very very reasonable proportion. Um, almost 25% of the patients, 20-25% had a calcified nodule. But I, I, I got. I just want to make sure and stress that because it's important conceptually, the more calcium you have, the more likely you are to have a nodule. That might be a little misconception. And so you have to put the data in the context of that. So obviously to get more expansion in a more heavily calcified artery is harder. So the fact that these lesion preparation strategies are allowing you to do that further really substantiates
0: that the mechanism of action that it works. I think it's a great point, and oftentimes it's just like, you know, it's just like the idea that if you have a plaque, then you're more likely to have plaques elsewhere. It's the same sort of principle acting with calcium. Um, And frankly, if you fracture, whether you fracture at the nodule or in other areas, the expansion is going to be good. Um, The eccentric story is tough to say because, you know, the MSA might be because you've expanded against the opposite wall. But the fact that you see fractures, I think, is is a good point. You don't normally see that with conventional strategies. I'd make one more point about eccentric versus concentric. So
1: IVL facilitates fractures according to the amount you need. If you have lots of calcium, you need lots of fractures to expand the stent. If you don't have a lot of calcium, you don't need that many fractures to expand the stent. And so since what we're, our aim here is lesion preparation to get maximal stent expansion, it facilitates that irrespective amount of calcium. The last thing that we talked about earlier is, remember it's very rare, the gatekeeper's the angiogram, so when you look at the angiogram, there's severe calcium. That's where you pull the IVL catheter. Mm. So along that 40-odd millimeters of calcium, there's going to be all types of morphologies, 360, 270, nodule, eccentric. So it's important when you're performing your IVL to do it throughout and not just you know put all 80 shocks into the tightest lesion because you need to modify the calcium throughout the length of the lesion in order to maximize your minimal stent area throughout the stent.
0: I think the other part to this, as well, is that most individuals, as you said, the gatekeepers, the angiogram, but they're not doing the amount of imaging that you would sort of be able to determine what you're actually doing. Um, I would encourage folks to certainly look, because if you do, then you might see areas that you wouldn't otherwise treat. You might change your strategy. And and clearly, you know, future studies are needed because some operators might say, well, what if a regular balloon would work as well? But it is important to be able to add this data to show that there could be efficacy in in subgroups of lesions that most people didn't think that would be the case. But putting that all together, I guess that gets to you, Matt, because, uh, you know, Matthew, because basically, we're finding a mixed heterogeneous group of lesion subtypes in the data, and what are the long-term outcomes with that? And tell us what you present.
2: Right, so I had the opportunity to present the one-year outcomes of the uh, CAD-3 prospective observational study, which led to approval of the IVL technology with the 30-day results. So we looked at the one-year results, and these, again, to refresh people's memory, about 384-odd patients who had de novo lesions that were severely calcified, defined by either a tram track like appearance of fluoroscopy, you see those two lines of calcium for more than 15 millimeters, or on intravascular imaging having at least three quarters of the circumference of the lumen calcified. Um, and The lesions had to be between the reference vessels between 2.25 and four, pretty standard stuff, in stable CAD uh, cohort. And those patients were treated with IVL. We know from the 30-day data that it easily met its specified performance criteria. And so we looked at the one-year MACE, uh, components of the MACE, Look also at at, at ischemia-driven TLR and other important inputs. And we found, I I think, pretty, as one would expect in a very complex lesion cohort. The average lesion length was approximately 25 millimeters, 26 millimeters. And the average length of calcium to Zia's point was about 45 millimeters, okay? So long stretches of calcium. Well, the one-year MACE rate was 13.8%, which is quite reassuring. Incremental increase in MACE, really driven by paraprocedural myocardial infarctions around the time of the procedure, and a, a bit of TVR as one would expect. Your one month TVR is gonna be fairly low, and you'll see over that one year accrual, accrual of TVR due to instant restenosis. There was a single stent thrombosis event beyond 30 days, which again is favorable in this high, uh, uh, high, um, highly complex lesion cohort. So all in all, pretty... Um, Understandable outcomes in terms of a complex lesion subset, but again with single-digit TBR and ischemic driven TLR rates in perhaps a and not not exaggerating one of the more complex lesion subsets ever studied in a prospective FDA registration trial.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the one-year day is really important because. There is a theoretical risk that I mean, people like Raina Vermani used to talk about, that you're basically applying a lot of energy to the vessel, and yeah, you can get a good outcome because you're cracking the calcium, but is that going to lead to restenosis? Is it going to engender a more proliferative response to the, to the, to the stent that you put in? And the fact that your incremental rate of TLR that you showed is quite low is pretty reassuring, frankly.
2: I would say a takeaway just from the first data, at 30 days, and this is also to re-emphasize Ziad's point about treating the entire lesion, is that actually most of the events at 30 days were driven by areas outside the stenton region that, were, that had calcium, that were under-recognized by the operators, right? Um, and that's where the those major, early major adverse cardiovascular events came. So again, however you want to do, either be careful with your angiogram to really look at fluoroscopic calcification or better yet, do some intravascular imaging to understand where to treat with your IVL catheter.
1: If I can, Ajay, I just want to make one really important point, because in the intravascular imaging arm, the mace rate was 4.6%. So you you had the opportunity to see the calcium throughout the length and deliver the therapy because you could see it. So, you know, that was very low. In fact, it was lower. We did some statistical testing and there was some power, but but I think that's it. Yeah, so you know, very valuable and, and it helps you to determine how to deliver your shocks.
2: I would say that you don't need intravascular imaging to do IVL. Oh. I mean, I think um, I think IVL, excuse me, intravascular imaging is good for all cases. And hopefully we'll have some data in the coming years showing that improves uh, two-year event rates. A little trial called Illumia 4 that Ziad and I are involved in. Um, that being said, I, and I'm very curious what Ziad has to has to say about whether I, whether intravascular ultrasound could help us decide what type of treatment to use, given the results that you found in the OCT arms in these trials for the study.
0: Do you mean IVIS or any imaging? Oh, what if imaging to guide your therapy? Yeah. I mean,
1: I think like you said, right now we have lots of algorithms, but. The reality is even the algorithms are dynamic because we keep learning, you know, arguably if you can use IVL and calcified nodules and you get excellent stent expansions that are the same as non-calcified nodules, you get an eccentric and concentric and you can make this
2: your first line. Right. So that, I mean, it is sort of the the algorithm, maybe no longer an algorithm, if you can get your catheter to the lesion in question, and it makes things simple.
0: Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would say, because I know everybody here is is very pro-imaging as a whole, is that, um, you know, if you look at the FAME3 data that was presented at this meeting with 12% overall use of imaging, your outcomes are not going to be the greatest overall unless you use more. So we've all learned a ton. I do also think it is fair to say that without comparative data, could you get equivalent outcomes with another device? So we all know this and we all want to know. And we're all scientists at heart too. So it's important to figure out what subsets it's optimized for and what subsets you have other options too. I mean but, I think, no, 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 yeah go ahead. I was gonna say you know let's say they are all
1: equivalent. Then it comes to how easy it is to use. Right? Like can you plug it in and play? I mean that's
2: why people use you know so much volcano Ivis, because it's easy. So I think you know I think that's gonna be a pragmatic thing- algorithm. Yeah. As in, okay, this is a subtotal calcified lesion, I can't even get a compliant balloon across. I'm gonna use an technology. Yeah, that's so right. I mean, that's, so, that's a pragmatic approach. Whereas versus, I mean, the interesting things, the odd, or the, I think the impressive thing is, if we continue to confirm the data that you found, is does the morphology of the calcium drive the type of technology we need to use? And it would seem to be that, although many would be equivalent, it's not going to help you choose between devices.
0: Yeah, I think that's the, the holy grail is to figure out which is optimized for a specific type of lesion subset. And we'll have to sort it out. But nonetheless, having aggregate data with these types of outcomes across you know all comers with the imaging data, that's kind of look at the mechanisms. Yeah. It really helps you because it l- lets you sort out what goes on. Alexander, let's move to use What did you present and why is it important? Because actually, it's kind of fascinating to talk about specific groups of patients that could be treated. Because we spoke angiographically, but what about clinically?
3: Right, so we we took a look at female patients. Uh, We know that female patients with heavily calcified lesions really do poorly after stenting. So, you know, I presented this morning some data showing three-year outcomes where mortality rates are higher, like 38% higher. Death and AY rates 40% higher of highly calcified lesions compared to non-calcified lesions. So, you know that that is really sort of a subset of patients that don't do well. And we know with atherectomy, acute complications are very high. So, you know, random dissections, perforations, etc., that lead to acute um, procedural complications. So. You know, there was a lot of interest in looking at outcomes based on you know all the CAD trials. So what we did was a pooled patient-level analysis, 600 patients, which is a you know it's a it's a big subset of uh, cohort of patients, uh, looking at comparing outcomes between females and male patients. And for the first time, so, you know, results as you uh, present really good, the TLR, TVR, MACE rates at 30 days are similar between men and women. But I think the striking thing to me was looking at the angiographic complications following IVL. And for the first time, we're seeing actually less complications, less dissections, less, you know, actually no other complications. Uh, in the females, uh, non-significant but numerically lower in female patients compared to the male patients. And, of course, that translates into really, you know, outstanding outcomes both in the hospital and at 30 days. So, you know, from my perspective, this is the first time we see this, and I think it's a... You know, it, it's, it's a game changer, really, for at least for the female patients, I think, in general, as we talk about sort of new algorithms and how are we going to apply this therapy. But, you know, it, it truly is, I think, a game changer. Of course, we're going to have to see what the, the long term outcomes are. These results are at 30 days, we'll have to see what, what the outcomes are at 12 months and beyond that. But, you know, it's, it's an increment. I mean, you know, this is truly sort of, a, you know, breakthrough and a, a different, different, you know, it's moving the, the, the bar and, you know, really improving outcomes for at least females and males as well. I mean, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, I think
0: that this idea of safety and potentially reduction of complications is one that's pretty intriguing. Yeah. And, and what it does appeal to a lot of people is that you don't necessarily have to have the learning curve or the ability to judge maybe I shouldn't be using this case, um, you know, for a specific type of device and maybe I should lean more towards other devices. In the past, some experienced clinicians could do that, but they were using balloon-based, sole balloon taste technologies, not using IVL specifically. So the ability to do that, uh, you know, really helps. Uh, On the other hand, I will also say that, you know, the selection of patients in the trial may play some role of that in comparison to other studies out there. But the fact is, is the data you have is the data you have. And the fact that you see this, abrogation of a differential effect by sex is quite reassuring as
3: well. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions, I guess, to you Ziad and, uh, and Matt is what uh, proportion of patients do you think we can apply this therapy for? How many of your, of the totality of calcified lesions, how many can we, you know, can we actually treat with IVL?
1: I, I, I think it's, it's gonna be the vast majority if you look at the device success rate, it was never less than 95%. Right. You might have to predialate. Disrupt c three. you have to predialate in 50% 95%. of cases. Okay, yep. that's not cheating, right? We use guide extenders. We have lots of good tools. So I-, I think in the vast majority, and remember these were just heavy calcifications. I think as this becomes easier, it becomes more widely adopted. Some of the reimbursement issues are taken care of. We might be adopting this more and more common. It's a balloon technology. It's easy. It's fast.
2: Matt, what do you think? No, I, I agree. I, I think you say what are where where are situations where I would not or could not use IVL? Can't deliver it. We've gotten much better at delivering things, even radially with with extension catheters, with stiffer wires, and all those things and pre dilatation. And that overlaps with severe lesions that you can't get a balloon across. So um, that's pretty much the limitation. Now, extensive calcification, may take more than one balloon, for example, more than one device, you're only at this juncture, there's 80 pulses per device. Down the road, they're gonna hopefully expand that with, with next generation technology. So there are some limitations, there'll be financial limitations as well. If yeah, I was gonna push
0: back on that. As your cath lab director here, uh, you, I don't know how you feel about every lesion right now.
2: Right, that so have- the, 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 there is a challenge with that. I would say that the speed and safety of the procedure is something not to shrug your shoulders at. That getting the patients on or off the table quickly, without a complication, is um, worth a lot, both financially and and intangible. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and that we need to we need to figure this out. I think you're right. I mean, I think we can't treat every patient with who has fluoroscopic calcium with IVL. And as you well put, that maybe sometimes a non-compliant balloon will do, do the trick. So I don't think there's a wrong strategy of pragmatically saying if the balloon will expand. Mm-hmm. I do think, however, there are some downsides to that. It's been talked about a lot, but if you really want to make sure that you're stensing that full expansion, you need to do a one-to-one dilatation with a non-compliant balloon. And if you have like a 3.5 vessel and you want to go to 20 atmospheres with a 3.5 NC, that does give me a little bit of pause in terms of complications, dissection and perforation of the calcium vessels. So I give a little pushback on that pragmatic pre-dilatation approach, but in certain situations, it certainly could work.
0: No, and I think it's actually important for a lot of operators out there who are actually uncomfortable. We did—I did a survey um, on social media where asked, you know, what are you? Uh, what's the highest pressure you're comfortable inflating a balloon to? And it's pretty instructive. There are a lot of people who won't go above what's nominal on a balloon chart because they're afraid of that. Now, I think any experienced operator—we've done it routinely. Like, in fact, you know, we joke about how the inflator needs to be relabeled in our yeah. lab, but. That having been said, especially for those operators who might not be as facile as used to dealing with perforations and other things like that, um, it's a more accessible technology, which is why I think there's some some um,
2: interest in it. And I do think that intravascular imaging can help you decide whether to use it or not. And I mean, Ziad put together this data. Um, uh, uh, North Shore looking at, at algorithms to decide whether you're gonna have Stent under expansion. I mean, the data is not incredibly robust. The rule of fives—you so can maybe talk about a little bit. Um, i St.
0: Francis before sorry. you start advertising for us. Oh my his God, daughter. so sorry. apologies. <laughs> I'm
2: just from <laughs> okay. California. Long Island. All right, so <laughs> fine Yeah. So, um, the you got me off track now because I paused. I knew I was uh, giving that. Thank you. Off. That is it. Thank you. So that. So if you do it intravascular imaging i prefer oct because you can see depth of calcium better but if you have a lot of calcium that's very thick over a broad extent of the of the vessel i think pre dilating and trying really hard to open up with that with it nc balloon is just a waste of time yeah i could so, be so i there i say okay there's a, a big enough lumen i get this balloon down let's just go ivl and move quickly rather than going with a 2.5 balloon then a three and then a 3.5 and it's yeah, that's not.
0: Yeah, I don't think that that's the practical approach. Yeah. The truth of the matter is, if we're going to agree that calcified lesions are a complex lesion subset where you should be imaging, period, then, you know, if some people say, well, do I need to pull an imaging catheter, or spend an imaging catheter to treat the lesion? Well, you're, frankly, you should be spending it anyway because you really should
1: be... Especially in complex lesions, yeah. right? Because we've done these analysis, the number you need to treat for general intravascular imaging is like 130, right? Sometimes if you do all covers, like 200, fine. But in, in complex lesions, it's one in thirty-seven. That's like better than statins, right? Yeah. I mean, you just do one catheter; you pay for it once. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue there, right? The good news is uh, some of that is actually extending around, like you know, the scar registry. Now in Sweden, you can't do a left main without imaging, and maybe maybe that'll you know translate as we do more and more of this, you know, calcified work. And it's becoming clear that it's a part of the algorithm that y- you really need it. Uh, I, and we're working on the uh, we're working on the you know to make it easier to, to know. Yeah. So we have this rule of fives. Yep. Which kind of people know about? 0. 0.5 millimeters in thickness of calcium, five millimeters long, fifty percent of the arc. If
0: you you should consider pre-treatment because you have a risk of under-expansion if you have those with a balloon alone. So that that's an example that you're not going to get fracture if you use conventional technologies. So now,
1: now we have the same thing with Ivis. Right, so we have the new rules with diet. Okay, I don't know the new rules. Just published. published. Just oh. published this, this month in circ intervention. Okay. And we have a mnemonic, it's called calcium laden. The C and the A are circumference of, if you have circumferential calcium, mm-hmm. 360, that gives you one point. If you have a length of calcium five millimeters with 270 arc, that's another point. If you have a calcified nodule, that's another point. And the last one is if if the vessel is big if it's 3.5 millimeters or larger next to the calcium your balloon will likely fracture it it's harder to break the calcium in smaller arteries that's just sucked
0: right? in it's just sucked in in. yeah
1: So it's like a weight I, I the way you know I speak an analogy but for me it's it's like a weightlifter right so if you start trying to lift your weights from your chest it's really hard but if you've got your elbows in front of you the balloon's already starting to expand
0: and got momentum. It's much hard, easier to break it. So now there's different scoring systems and the ability to do it. It's just a matter of people doing it. And that might be the pragmatic way of dealing with it. Um, because look, I, it, it, it's an accessible technology. You've shown the outcomes to be great. We have mechanistic data. We have subgroups that are very favorable. Um, and maybe it, in an idealized way, we'd want to use it in every way. We probably can't do that, though. So the algorithm of how to sort that out is probably where the sweet spot is for now. Maybe I'm going to say something different in five years. Anyway, I think it's a great discussion, frankly. I congratulate everybody on the data that was presented at the meeting because it's really data that we use to inform our practice. And you can otherwise just talk all you want, but you don't have anything to back it up with. So um, it's been great. Um, Honestly, thanks everybody for coming to CCT. Thanks for listening and watching. And um, we look forward to more data updates in the future. We hope you enjoyed that conversation that was hosted by TCTMD and sponsored by Shockwave Medical. The physicians were compensated for their time and its development. For more information about the technology, please visit shockwaveivl.com. And for the full important safety information for the technology, please visit shockwavec2isi.com. Thanks, and we'll see you in the next episode.